Bible's Proverbs, chapter 30. Last week, we considered verse 5 and 6, which had to do with the purity of God's Word. It's, uh, well, if you're going to camp out somewhere on a subject, that's about as good as it can get. Uh, tonight, here in verse 7, 8, and 9, we see Agur's prayer, and uh, I was sitting this afternoon and thinking about uh, the lesson tonight, and uh, the first thought that entered my mind was the importance of prayer. You know, I say quite often that everything depends on prayer, and it really does. Whether we preach effectively, whether we sing effectively, whatever we do as a church, if it's not bathed in prayer, it's destined to fail. Uh, strangely enough, I, I discovered the importance of prayer. In fact, I think of all of the things as soon as I realized I needed to be saved and I could be saved and I was saved, the moment I realized that, uh, I began to discover how important prayer was. Back in those days, every Sunday night before the evening service, we had uh, prayer rooms. The men went to their prayer room, the ladies to theirs, the kids to theirs. Everybody had a prayer room assigned to them. And uh, we would meet for just a few minutes and go over some prayer requests. And then we would divide up uh, three or four men or women, whatever the case might be, uh, into separate uh, Sunday school rooms to where we would pray. And immediately I began to realize what an important part of, uh, of prayer was to my life. In fact, the very first sermon I preached was on the subject of prayer. In fact, Laura back there has got a copy of the handwritten notes of the first sermon I preached. I happened to find that of all of the things, you know, we lost in the flood. Some way or another, that that survived. I think it's because it was in the office here, maybe. But uh, uh, but that was the first thing that I, I preached about. One of the best ways to learn about prayer is to read the prayers of those in the Bible. And that is especially true. By the way, you might be surprised to discover how many prayers there are in the Bible. But especially the writings of Paul, I can remember several years ago, I, I preached an entire series of messages on the prayers of Paul. And boy, you talk about some rich spiritual food. I mean, that's it. Uh, because if anybody knew how to pray and what to pray for, it was the Apostle Paul. But certainly he wasn't the only one. And so we learn a lot about prayer by just reading the prayers of those great men in ancient times. But we, we also learn a lot, naturally, by reading what is written about prayer in the Bible because uh, there's a lot said about it, you know. Uh, Jesus gave us the pattern or the model for prayer, and, and over and over again we find, uh, uh, we find examples of that. But tonight here we see that this prayer of Agur is, a, is I, I think, a great example for us also. The other day I was uh, meditating, trying to think about what I was going to be preaching, and uh, 
I'd almost decided to preach a message on the prayer of Jabez. As most of you know, there have been books written on that subject. I, I preached on that subject before, and it's really an interesting prayer also. But here we find three verses, and, and, and I hope whenever it's all said and done tonight, you can see the value of this prayer. So, verse number seven is where we begin. Two things. Have I required of thee, deny me them not before I die. Now, I can't help but remember what he said all the way back in verse number 2 about his confession of ignorance. Here's a guy that didn't pretend to be something he wasn't. He, He didn't, you know, pretend to be wiser than he was. But here in this prayer, if nothing else, we see that he was indeed a very wise man. Whether he realized it or not, he was a wise man. And and he's praying here as though he's dying. And he's pouring out the desire of his heart. And and it basically gets down to a twofold request that he's making. And, uh, you know, most people don't focus on or pursue the most noble things in life. So he just gathers it all up, everything that he could have mentioned, and reduces it down to two things, at least at that point in his life, that he felt a desperate need for. Most of us are concerned, overly concerned, about self-interest, you know, and the chief aim of the average person is to gratify the flesh. But here is a man whose greatest concern was to honor God. And he understood the brevity of life. He, he knows he's not going to be here very long. And that gave him a sense of urgency whenever he makes his request known, known to God here. So he says, deny me them not before I die. It's going to be too late after he's dead and gone. So he has this sense of urgency about it. This is something he wants to see uh, happen, you know, now while he's still here on this earth. And uh, notice this, this is a very short prayer, by the way. Uh, in reading about the old-timey preachers, I'm talking about 100 and 150 years ago, it was it was not unusual for some of those preachers, this is during the service, by the way, to pray for, for 20 or 30 minutes. Now, I can't imagine. I, I, I think I'd open my eyes and everybody would be gone if I had prayed 30 minutes, and you know. Uh, and so I, I don't suggest anybody does that. But the fact is, I think sometimes a lot of people get the impression that, you know, that we're heard for our much speaking, and that's not what the Bible teaches. So uh, a short prayer can be an effective prayer if it's a sincere prayer. Uh, that, that's the real key there, that it be sincere. Uh, because we're not praying in order to impress people we're praying to get what we need from God and uh, and to to please the Lord, so they don't have to be long to be effective. The Lord taught that in Matthew chapter number six. Now, it goes without saying that Agur had a lot of other needs. No doubt he could have made a long list. You know, it might have been that he had some physical problems that he could have prayed about. It might be that he had some financial problems. It might be that there were some domestic problems in his life. So I'm certain, just like every person here, 
he could have made a long list of things that he wanted to pray for or things that he needed in his life. But notice, his focus is reduced down to two things that at least in his life, and at least at that time in his life, this was an urgent need. You know, I think if we're honest, most of us want too much. We, You know, we got a never-ending list of things that we want uh, but at this time in his life, he just he, he he just shuffles the deck, so to speak, and reduces it down to two things. Now, number one, here's the first thing that he expressed a concern about. He was concerned about truth. Verse number eight, notice what he says. Remove far from me vanity and lies. He wanted the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He wanted to be separated from anything that might deaden his sensitivity toward God. And let me tell you, whenever you make it your interest to contend for the truth, to do what is true and honest and decent, you're not going to win friends and influence people. There will be people that will oppose you. I was writing an article today that just sort of alluded to this. Over the years, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, you know, people are more important than rules. And inevitably, they say that because they're trying to justify their disrespect for the rules. I've had it happen over and over again because, you know, the average person just doesn't like rules, especially if it applies to their manner of life. And the very minute that you try to oppose them saying, look, you might not like this rule, but this is based on on what is right, you know. And if it's right, it ought to be a rule. It, it you know, might not be popular, but 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 it's a rule. And, and so the first thing they do then is accuse us of what? Being hateful. It happens all of the time. But here's a man that's concerned about the truth. Notice the word vanity here, because that describes the character of the world that we live in. And lies describes the deceitfulness of the world. It's interesting that he put those two things together. The character of the world is vanity. The deceitfulness of the world has to do with the lies that are told. Vanity has to do with things that are empty, things that are worthless, things that are, uh, that are futile. You remember that Solomon conducted his experiment. He said, I tried this and I tried that. I tried everything under the sun. And he said it was all vanity. It, it was a soap bubble world. Nothing satisfied, you see. Everything basically was worthless. Now, lies have to do with falsehood. That is a distortion of the truth or dishonesty. And these are the two things he wants to be delivered from because, remember, Satan is the father of lies, and there's always someone whispering in our ear. We've got all of these voices around us telling us to spend our life on things that are nothing more than vanity. And that's why he wants to escape these two things. He realizes the things of this world are worthless, they're useless, and, and, and we better be interested in what is really true. Now, when, and, and we see this in, when he says here, notice he talks about riches. 
and, and, and riches, according to the Bible, are both vanity and lies. Turn over to 1 Timothy, if you would, chapter number 6. Chapter number 6, and I'm sure you're familiar with the least part of these verses here. And notice what he says beginning in verse 6. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and remnant, let us be there with content. Uh, but they that that will be rich fall into temptations and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some have coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So th this is the whole idea here when we think about riches in the end, it's nothing but vanity because riches cannot satisfy and it's based upon a lie of the devil that, you know, if we can get this and we can gain that, well, then we'll be happy. Agur did not want to waste his life pursuing things that are just illusions of success. Because let's face it, the world looks at somebody, you know, that's got a lot of money and uh, they think the first thing they think of is, my, they're really successful. Well, how successful are they if they're miserable? How successful are they if they're unloving and unkind? So regardless of how much money we've got, it never satisfies. In fact, it really does just the opposite. It puts us on edge. Because, you know, the people that's got a lot of money, after, after they've got it, they figure out a way to keep it, you see. And uh, not only do they want to keep it, they generally want to get more because they're not satisfied with what they've got. I, I, I've read in several different places and several different times of the lottery winners. I'm sure you've seen that in some of your reading or heard it on the news somebody wins several million dollars in the lottery and a year later they commit suicide that usually happens after they get a divorce after their whole life and the testimony of some is i wish i'd never won the lottery it absolutely ruined their life and agar understood the danger in riches and he wanted nothing to do with that which was vanity he wanted nothing to do that which uh, was a lie now the second thing that he requested here is is was expressing his concern about being content uh, he says in verse 8 give me neither poverty nor riches feed me with food convenient for me now you know just about everybody would like to think they're wise, or at least they would like for others to think they're wise. You know, that, that, they just want to leave that impression. I'm really a smart guy, you know, and what have you. But the question is, where's the evidence? You know, if we think we're wise, where's the evidence of that? And so we need to ask ourselves, well, how wise am I? Well, here's the test right here. Do you fear wealth as much as you fear poverty? Think about that. Do you fear wealth as much as you do poverty? Are you aware that both riches and poverty can cause great temptation? Uh, has anybody here ever prayed for a, 
I'm not asking you to raise your hand. Ever prayed for a moderate income? Yeah, that, that's what he's doing. Lord, I don't want to be rich. I don't want to be poor. Just, just give me a moderate income, you know. Well, remember what Paul said about being content with what? Food and raiment. You got clothes to put on your back, you know, and shoes on your feet and food to eat. He said, be content with that. But the question is, would we really be satisfied if that's all we had? You know, a lot of people talk about, well, yeah, I'm content. Well, sure you are. Sure you are. Look at all, look at all you've got, you know. Yeah, you're content. But would you be content if it was all reduced down to food and raiment? That's the point. And um, re- regardless of our condition, the Bible tells us that we ought to be content. Paul said that he finally learned to be content. And I think that's something that we all learn. And I'm not sure any of us ever learn it, you know, to the point of excellence. But we ought to be in the process of learning to be content. Uh, And one of the things that really helps us is this. In knowing that if we're faithful to God, that God will supply our needs. Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added to you. So if we are faithfully serving God, we're going to have everything we need. We might not have everything we want, because everybody can think of something they'd like to have. Every, you know, every time a new this or a new that comes out, we think, man, I'd like to get the new model of that, you know. I, I'd like to update what I've got. Everybody can think about something that they want, but if we're faithfully serving God, we have what we need, whether we're satisfied with it or not. But really, this is, Eager's prayer is more than just a matter of contentment. It's a matter of him being able to, to escape temptation because he knows that poverty or riches, either one, provides temptation. So he's praying for a moderate amount. And it's kind of like him saying, Lord, whatever you prescribe for me, that'll be fine with me. Whatever you give me, it doesn't make any difference, but it's a little or a lot or whatever, that, that would be fine. You know, I've got to wonder how many of us could honestly say that. You know, Lord, I'm not asking for anything. Just give me the strength to serve you faithfully, and I'll be satisfied with whatever you give me. Now, that's the basis of his prayer. That he wants to, he, he wants to escape vanity and lies, and he wants to learn to be content, and, and he wants to avoid temptation. Now he's going to explain in verse nine why he prayed like he did. Notice he says, "Lest I be full and deny thee, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal." And take the name of my God in vain. You see, he knows that both prosperity and poverty can be dangerous. Prosperity can lead us to pride, self-confidence, uh, a feeling of, uh, of security that, that maybe is not justified. And, and so it causes us to forget the Lord. You'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar, here's old King Nebuchadnezzar, and and he has everything. He's got riches. He's got power. He's got um, control of the people and so forth. And yet, 
as Daniel comes along and and, uh, and challenges him, and he says, who is the Lord that I ought to obey him? Who is God? I, you know, I, I, I don't need God. And you'll be surprised how many people that have been raised maybe in poverty. They've had a hard, difficult life. And, and, and they, they knew that, it, you know, only by the grace of God that they've made it. And as soon as they hit the big time, now they got plenty of money and now they can kind of do whatever they want to do. And all of a sudden they push God in the corner. You see, that's one of the temptations. That's one of the dangers that he's concerned about. And, and so you, you could say, to look at it another way, that Agur's greatest fear was sin. He wants to avoid sin or anything, you know, that might cause it. And if being prosperous is going to cause me to sin against God, then, hey, I'd rather be poor than prosperous. And so he's more concerned about his relationship with God than he was about appearing successful in the eyes of the world because human nature has never changed. And even back then, just like today, as soon as you see someone in a position of power and that, that's prosperous and what have you, you think, well, boy, you know, they're really successful. Uh, you'd be surprised how many people don't want to go to a school reunion, you know, because they know that everybody's going to ask the question, you know, what have you been doing over all of these years, you know? And, and basically they want to know, have you been successful or not? Well, he wanted to avoid that temptation, but he also did not want to to be uh, feel ashamed, as it were, because of his rags. And whether it's rags or whether it's riches, they, they can affect us in different ways because as prosperity leads to pride, then poverty can lead to shame. You know, to feel like, you know, we're a nobody, we're no good. And, 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 and Agar's only concern is about having a good relationship with God and, and the nature of his request shows us how serious he is about it. So think about these two things, and we'll wrap it up. These two things that he wanted to be delivered from. Number one, the folly of prosperity. And he had good reason to see danger in it. Remember Pharaoh? And Pharaoh had the attitude, you know, well, who's the Lord? Uh, you know, you can't dictate to me what I'm going to do. I'm the one that's in charge. You think about the rich young ruler there in the New Testament, and uh, he chose riches over Christ. And over and over again, Jesus warned us about the danger of riches in the verse that I just read a few moments ago there in Second First Timothy where Paul warns us that the love of money is the root of all evil, and he talks about the fact that it has brought ruin to a great many lives. And so there is a great danger in that. On the other hand, not only did he fear the folly of prosperity, but the fear of poverty. He said, Lord, don't give me too much, you know. Why? Because I don't want to get prosperous and get prideful. He said, just feed me with convenient food for me. Just give, you the, give me the basic necessities, lest I steal from others. You know, sometimes we'd like to think, well, I'd never do this or I'd never do that. And the fact of the matter is, folks, 
we don't always know exactly what we would do if we were in some situation. To think about being reduced down to such dire poverty that your family is going without, you might be surprised how that would change your values. Agar knew that. He knew that if my family is in jeopardy and we don't have food to eat, I'm liable to go over and steal from my neighbor, and that wouldn't be right. So he says, just give me a moderate income. I don't want to be rich. I don't want to be poor because it would lead me to temptation in some other way. Uh, you know, it, poverty has led some people to lie, led some people to cheat or to steal. But let me tell you, there are worse things, and he understood this, there are worse things than being poor. And uh, certainly the, the temptation to steal from somebody else or the temptation to, to lie and cheat, uh, that's a whole lot worse than being poor. And he understood the danger in all of these things. And, and, and I just wonder how, if, if we show that much insight when we pray, think about that for a little while. Because a lot of times our prayers are just wrote, you know, that, that, they're just cold and dead and lifeless and we don't really put any thought into it. We've got our mental pattern of things that we go through. But here's a man that's praying out of desperation, things that he wants God to do before he dies. He knows, you know, I'm not going to be here forever and, and this is what I want God to do. I want God... I want God to help me to learn to be convenient or to be content with what I've got and to not have a desire to get more and, and you know, not to be reduced to poverty, that I'd do something foolish. So, as I said at the beginning, indeed, here's a man in verse 2 that admits to his ignorance, but then when we look at all of the evidence, we see he was a very wise man and it, it, I think it'd be great if we'd all put that kind of thought in our prayers and uh, it'd certainly make them more effective well we're going to stop there and we'll pick up in verse number 10 next week and uh, when we look at the next section beginning in verse 11 actually because I've really found it difficult to know what to do with verse 10 I you know, uh, I don't know whether to attach it to what we've just talked about or whether to think of it as an introduction to uh, beginning in verse number 11, but whatever, whether it's a standalone proverb or whatever, we'll talk about that, but then we're going to get right into to what he says beginning in verse 11, and he'll mention here uh, six groups of four things. Six groups of four things, and we're going to be talking about each one of those groups as we go through that. All right, thank you for being here. Anyone have a final word, maybe something we forgot about or uh, any announcements that need to be made? Uh, all minds clear, huh? Well, thank you for your faithfulness being here week after week and uh, be praying for our services on Sunday. All right. Okay, let's all stand.